Kira, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from GSK. The content is entirely independent and was developed by the Goodfellow Unit and our expert speaker. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Dr. Tyson Obendorfer to the podcast. Today we are discussing herpes zoster in the older adult. Tyson is a consultant geriatrician at Taranaki District Health Board. He is a medical co-director of the Frailty Initiative, which aims to develop a pathway of care for older people with frailty as they move through the healthcare system. Prior to moving to New Zealand, he held an assistant professor position at the University of Colorado and was the co-founder and medical director of the UC Health Ball Prevention Clinic. Kira Tyson, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Louise. Thanks for having me. So today we're discussing herpes zoster in the older adult. Why is herpes zoster more a disease of the older adult, Tyson? Can you tell us about this? So young people can certainly have herpes zoster, but it is exceedingly rare uh, in younger people. The incidence does clearly increase with age. The lifetime risk is more than 30%. And the incidence for people who are older than 85 is more than 50%, so one in two. As we get older, our immune systems go through a process called immunosenescence or age-related decline in immunity. Uh, This leads to progressive deterioration in both innate and adaptive immunity that increases the risk of reactivation. So you're referring to reactivation of the varicellus virus. Can you tell us about this? Right. So as we know, shingles is caused by reactivation of the varicella zoster virus. After chickenpox infection, the virus takes up residence in sensory and autonomic ganglia, um, and the immune system essentially keeps it at bay for decades. So only people who have had chickenpox are at risk of developing shingles later in life. The chickenpox vaccine was first approved for use in New Zealand in 1996, uh, and it was around the same time in the U.S. as well. And that means that the incidence of herpes zoster is, uh, is dropping with, um, with the next generation. So preventing that initial episode sounds important. Absolutely. If you don't have uh, chicken pox initially, then varicella zoster virus isn't going to be in those ganglia to begin with to reactivate later. So Tyson, just to clarify, you've mentioned that our immune system starts to falter. Does this happen to everybody? Yeah, so aging is a biological fact. The dark humor among geriatricians is that we all start to die after age 30. But it's an individualized process, uh, which means that I don't age the same way that you age. And even within individuals, the way that my kidneys age is going to be different than the way my skin ages. So everyone does it differently. And some people have a relatively preserved immune function, even as they go into very old age while other people's immune function declines more quickly. That means that the the individual risk of reactivation varies from person to person. So what other factors impact on immunosensescence or the risk of herpes zoster? Really, any condition that impairs the immune system is going to leave the patient more vulnerable to reactivation. And so you have cases of iatrogenic immune dysfunction, such as, you know, giving um, immunosuppressive medications and solid organ transplants, for example. Those patients, uh, standard of care is to give a vaccine before starting immunosuppressive medications. People who have decreased immune function 
as a result of other medical comorbidities um, are also at increased risk of activation. So people who have uh, HIV AIDS are at increased risk of herpes zoster. Um, in, in a more commonly seen condition. So for example, you have an older patient who has COPD and multiple hospital admissions for exacerbation and they're, they're put on a corticosteroid inhaler. Um, there is some systemic absorption and that's going to cause decrease in immune function. So they're at increased risk of herpes zoster. Can I ask you about modifiable risk factors for a moment? So thinking environmental and behavioral factors that might impact on aging or the risk of herpes zoster? Right. So all of the lifestyle modifications that you normally counsel patients on to lower cardiovascular risk. So smoking cessation is particularly important. We know that it increases an inflammatory state and it decreases immune function. Eating a Mediterranean diet with less red, red meat and pork regular exercise, good sleep. All of these are good habits that boost immune function and theoretically would lower the risk of uh, herpes zoster, but I'm not aware of any studies that specifically show that. So talking about vaccines for a moment, what vaccines are available in New Zealand um, against herpes zoster? Currently, the only shingles vaccine available in New Zealand is Zostavax. It's a live attenuated vaccine and it's funded for adults over the age of 50, again, because you see that precipitous increase in incidence after age 50. In the US, Zostavax was first approved in 2006, but it was actually discontinued in 2020 because it was shown to be far less effective than Shingrix, which is the only other shingles vaccine uh, that currently exists. Uh, so Tyson, you've mentioned Shingrix. Tell us about this vaccine. Yeah, Shingrix is a recombinant vaccine targeting the glycoprotein E of varicella virus. It is administered as two shots separated by, by two to six months. It was first approved for use in the U.S. in 2017. This was based on a large international phase three trial of adults older than age 50, and that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. That showed an efficacy against herpes zoster of around 95%. And then um, a follow-up study published the next year, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked at adults older than age, the age of 70. And that showed an efficacy of, uh, against herpes zoster of around 90%. Um, that was in all age groups and over a follow-up period of about three to four years. Both of those studies were funded by GlaxoSmithKline, the maker of Shinrix. So how does the efficacy of Shinrix compare with Zostavax? Zostavax has consistently been shown to be around 50% effective, so about a, a coin flip. And most of those studies are also over a follow-up period of about three years. There are some meta-analyses out there comparing Shingrix and Zostavax, but to my knowledge, there aren't any direct head-to-head -head comparisons. So there was an article published in 2019 by McGurr. They showed a Zostavax efficacy of 51% in adults 60 and older but only 37% in adults 70 and over. And so, so it basically confirmed what people had been seeing anecdotally, which is a decline in uh, response uh, or efficacy of the Zostavax vaccine with age. In comparison, Shingrix has been shown in multiple studies to preserve an efficacy of around 90%, even in the oldest old. 
So another study published by GlaxoSmithKline in 2021, they did a post hoc analysis of uh, the Shingrix vaccine based on those original phase three trials that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. They looked at frailty status of those original participants by calculating a frailty index based on a lot of the uh, initial metrics that uh, patients provided before starting the trial. And they showed a greater uh, than 90% efficacy in all frailty subgroups. So even if you're a very old patient, and even if you're a very old patient who has frailty, you still have a very significant response to Shingrix. So you've mentioned that this data reflects a follow-up period of three to four years. Do we know how well these vaccines perform beyond that? So I'm not aware of any studies of Zostavax beyond three years follow-up, but there is some data on Shingrix. So there's an article published in 2021, uh, Butri et al., and they did an extension of the two original Shingrix phase three trials. They showed an overall efficacy of 84% after seven years. I also found another uh, study um, also published in 2021, Izurieta et al. They actually did a post-market analysis using Medicare data to try to get at real-world efficacy of Shingrix. And this is not funded by GSK. This is independent. And, and it's also looking at an administrative data set, which means that there's, they're looking at slightly different things than overall effectiveness. But they found an overall effectiveness of 70%, which is significantly lower than what the clinical trials showed, partly because of the way they got at that data um, through the administrative data set. So the effectiveness was a little bit lower in people who are older than 80 and those with autoimmune diseases, and it dropped to 64% for immunocompromised patients. And that was for people who had both doses of Shingrix. Can we touch on safety now of the vaccinations? So are there any people who you wouldn't offer these vaccinations and why? The biggest difference between the two vaccines is that Zostavax is a live attenuated vaccine and Shingrix is a is a recombinant vaccine, which means that Zostavax is not appropriate for use in immunocompromised patients. Shingrix is safe to administer in immunocompromised patients because it's, you know, because it's not live attenuated. The most frequent adverse effects of Shingrix are pain at the injection site, headache, and fatigue. When I was practicing as, a, as essentially a GP for older people in the United States, you know, part of my job was to make sure that my patients got their Shingrix vaccine. And I would, I would counsel patients to expect essentially mild cold-like symptoms um, that last about a day or two and then, and then go away on their own. I was upfront with them. I said, this is not going to be a pleasant experience necessarily, but it's a little bit of pain to prevent potentially significant problems down the road. Um, and I had very few patients who declined. There was recently a um, study published actually this month in Annals of Internal Medicine that showed a statistically significant increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome Shingrix, but the effect was very, very small, three cases per million doses. And the the authors felt like there was no um, increased safety concern and benefits of of vaccination still clearly outweighed uh, the risks. So Tyson, the whole point of preventing herpes zoster is to prevent it sequelae. How effective are these vaccinations in preventing those? And what are we trying to prevent? 
Right. So you're you're referring to herpes zoster ophthalmalicus and uh, post-herpetic neuralgia. I'm not aware of any studies showing efficacy of Zostavax against herpes zoster ophthalmalicus. A records-based retrospective cohort study out of Hawaii, um, so it's a, a Kaiser Permanente data set, showed that Shingrix was 93% effective against herpes zoster ophthalmalicus. And then the um, Shingrix efficacy against post-herpetic neuralgia from the original phase three trial, that was the one in adults older than 70, was 89%, which is ridiculously high <laughs> um, and, and, and very clinically significant, which is why, which is why Shingrix became a standard of practice in the United States. The McGurr meta-analysis that I had referenced earlier they described efficacy against post-herpetic neuralgia with Zostavax being 67% and Shingrix being 89%, so also consistent with the original phase three trial. And that's in adults older than 70. So from the geriatrician's perspective, Shingrix clearly provides better protection than Zostavax against herpes zoster ophthalmalicus and post-herpetic neuralgia which are the, the primary complications of herpes zoster and what we're trying to prevent in the first place. The other question I have, Tyson, um, is about the initial episode of shingles. Once someone is vaccinated, is this episode less severe? There certainly are breakthrough cases. You know, Even with an efficacy of as high as 90%, you're still going to have people who get it anyways. I can't speak with accuracy about the severity of um, of the episodes for people who get it despite the vaccine, but it's clearly described in the literature that those who have a more severe acute phase of the disease tend to have higher risk of uh, post-herpetic neuralgia specifically. Thank you for clarifying that. So it can be quite difficult to treat patients with persistent post-herpetic neuralgia. Can you talk about your treatment approach? Yeah, so, so the treatment approach that you might see in, uh, in recommendations, uh, in guidelines here, differs from mine, ma- mainly because I'm coming from a geriatrician's perspective. So I think that the guidelines that you look at might say first-line treatment is gabapentinoids, and then second-line treatment is um, our, our TCAs, or tricyclic antidepressants. My initial treatment is... Um, is first paracetamol and topical or non-pharmacologic medications. Of course, that's assuming that it's not a severe case and it's not severely debilitating. So specifically, I would try capsaicin cream first. In my experience, there's variable patient response to capsaicin cream. So some people, it burns them and, and it's, it's just not a pleasant experience. Another option is lidocaine gel, which just literally takes the sensation away from that area. If patients aren't able to get their hands on those, or if it doesn't work for them, I also recommend cold packs or ice. So, you know, occupying the nerves with uh, temperature information decreases the amount of pain sensation that can reach the brain. And that's kind of a similar mechanism for TENS. So, you know, peripheral nerve stimulation will occupy, you know, take up traffic of the nerves and um, decrease the pain sensation. So my, my initial approach is see if we can manage this without systemic oral medications. So Tyson, you've mentioned non-oral pharmacological methods. I wonder if we can talk about oral pharmacological methods for a moment and 
what your approach is, hopefully in a stepwise type manner for us. Sure. So if topical treatment doesn't work, then gabapentinoids are the next step. A gabapentin versus pregabalin, it, it doesn't really matter, but I think gabapentin is my preference since it's a lot more easily titrated. So specifically in the older adult, as a geriatrician, my approach is to use the lowest effective dose. Also knowing that gabapentin um, and really all gabapentinoids have an increased risk of adverse effects in older adults, I try to minimize the risk of those adverse effects. So I tell my patients, take that first dose at night when you're going to be sleeping anyways. Um, so if it causes you to be dizzy or if it causes you to be overly tired, you're going to sleep anyways, and you're not walking around anyways. So I would start 100 milligrams of gabapentin at night. If they tolerate it well, then take it again the next morning and take it twice daily. See how it goes. If uh, they're tolerating it well and they still have pain, then increase stepwise by 100 milligrams. Looking up gabapentin on the New Zealand formulary, they have a maximum total daily dose of 3,600 milligrams. And from my perspective as a geriatrician, that's wholly inappropriate for older patients. In older people, the maximum total daily dose that's actually effective is 1,800 milligrams or 600 milligrams three times daily. Anything beyond that, you're just buying adverse effects and, and risk. So after gabapentin, you know, finding that lowest effective dose, um, if gabapentin isn't working, then I'll, I'll switch to pregabalin. And so that's, that would be a taper down of gabapentin to a safe dose before stopping. And then I would try uh, pregabalin uh, 25 milligrams. Again, starting the first dose at night, if they tolerated it well and they still have pain, then, then give another dose in the morning. Similar to gabapentin on the New Zealand formulary, the maximum total daily dose for gabapentin is 300 milligrams twice daily. That's a huge dose in older people. And I've actually had patients who are on that dose and they were not doing well. And they still had their neuropathic pain that they were dealing with. In my experience, if a patient doesn't respond to 75 milligrams twice daily of pregabalin, they're not likely to benefit from higher doses. Um, I can think of an, as some exceptions to that, um, where maybe you know 150 milligrams is effective and leads to a better quality of life. So that's pregabalin and gabapentin. If pregabalin isn't working and gabapentin isn't working, and we've tried all the topical medications, only then will I consider a tricyclic antidepressant. And the only one that I'll consider is nortriptyline. Amitriptyline is, is an absolute contraindication in older, older adults. Um, and there's better evidence for efficacy in reducing neuropathic pain in using nortriptyline. So it is similar to pregabalin and, and gabapentin. I, I try to find the lowest effective dose. Um, I would start at five milligrams and then increase to 10. I really don't like to go higher than that, though I do have patients who are on upwards of 20. They just don't do well, though. I do want to talk about opioids and uh, treatment of post-herpetic neuralgia. The guidelines are that it's okay to give opioids for a short-term period to bridge acute pain while other treatments are, are being initiated. And 
my experience has been I've come across a lot of patients who their GP started tramadol or codeine and before post-herpetic neuralgia and then just kind of stuck around. And long-term treatment of post-herpetic neuralgia with opioids is, is all, especially in older adults, is, is inappropriate. Some great practice points here. Thank you for those. Tyson, um, I have seen venlafaxine used. Is this appropriate? Absolutely. So especially for people who have more refractory cases, and especially for people who might have comorbid um, mood disorders, I will definitely use venlafaxine as an adjunctive treatment. Just before we finish today, I do have two questions that have sprung to mind. If we've missed the boat as far as vaccination goes and a patient does get shingles, is there a role for vaccination post-episode? This is my first question. Yes. So, so that's actually the recommendation. So even if somebody has had an episode of herpes zoster shingles, once that has resolved, the recommendation is to get um, here, Zostavax, but in the United States, Shingrix. And that will protect against a recurrent episode. And again, uh, as Shinrix is not familiar to all of us yet, is there an optimal age that we should be offering this to our patient when it does become available? I believe that the age is, is the same as for Zostavax, that it's um, older than the age of 50. So Shingrix is, first of all, it's not as far as I know, not fully approved yet, but um, GlaxoSmithKline is in the process of getting that final approval and it should be available soon, but it won't be funded. I would recommend that if you have a patient who wants to do the most that they can to protect themselves against herpes zoster, and if they have the means to do it, I would recommend Shingrix over Zostavax. Thank you for your time today. Just to conclude our podcast, a couple of take-home messages for our listeners, please. Yeah. So, so first, herpes zoster is caused by the reactivation of varicella zoster virus in sensory and autonomic ganglia decades after chickenpox infection. Herpes zoster incidence increases with age in part due to immunosenescence. Second message would be herpes zoster and its um, sequelae, so herpes zoster ophthalmalicus and post-herpetic neuralgia, they can be prevented by vaccination. Shingrix is more effective than Zostavax, and it's safe to give to immunocompromised patients because it's a recombinant vaccine. Third take-home message, Shingrix is soon to be approved for use in New Zealand, but it won't be funded initially. And for patients who have the means to, um, to get it, I would recommend that over Zostavax. Fourth take-home point, when treating post-herpetic neuralgia in older people, consider trying topical treatments first. So that would be capsaicin cream, lidocaine gel, cold packs, TENS units, before trying systemic medications. And then last take-home message is when you are using systemic medications, um, like gabapentinoids or tricyclics, really aim to use the minimum effective dose. Really, the tricyclic should be avoided if you can, and opioids are not indicated to treat post-herpetic neuralgia long-term, um, especially in older people. Wonderful. Thank you, Tyson. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please log it. You will find a list of resources that Tyson has mentioned on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening, everyone, and see you again soon.